The Big Picture, a Christian insight into the world of movies, television and pop culture with magazine editor Ben McKechn and scriptwriter Mark Hadley. A Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. Hip hip hooray, I'm Ben McKechn. And I'm his child prodigy Mark Hadley. Welcome to episode 123 of The Big Picture for the week beginning September 4th. And coming up on today's show... Captain America fights his biggest battle yet, parenting as actor Chris Evans stars in Gifted. And we dare to scare up the terrifying terrain of horror movies and assassin movies next to them. Well, there's a lot of death and gloom ahead. I know, but cheer up, because we're here and so is Sam. G'day, mate. Well, it's nice to bring a bit of light to that uh, doom and gloom ahead. We will try to bring some lightness. It is worth staying tuned, though. Ladies and gentlemen, that, that smile will light the way for us. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> Let's find out what's at the cinema this week, Ben McKechn. Uh Guys, something that um, opened at cinemas uh, this coming this week, sorry, this coming is uh, It, the remake of the very famous Stephen King book. That was a, a, a creepy horror film back in, was the 80s, 90s? Uh, 80s. About a creepy killer clown. So um, there's so many remakes, reboots, whatever you want to call them that are coming at the moment. It's kind of no surprise mm-hmm. that this is coming back. Um, but expect it to terrify youngsters and oldsters around the place. Don't take your kids. When creepy killer clown, comes. yeah, which bit about creepy killer clown makes you suggest that you should go and you should take your kids on? But the you're clown right. Part. You're right. All jokes aside, do not take your kids. Uh, we're going to be talking it's about. All right, don't, it's a it's a film about a clown. Don't Come listen. On. Don't listen to Mark Hadley. Listen to me. Don't take your kids. Uh, it's it's coming to cinemas this Thursday. We're going to be talking about it on the show next week because Mark, you are going not with your children. You are going. I'm, um, I'm going, and I'm going to ask them to leave the lights on in the cinema. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, a little bit later in the show, we're actually going to be talking with a former horror script writer about the appeal fear factor that goes on with horror movies. We're going to do a bit of an analysis of horror movies later in the show. Also, guys, um, if you can get to an IMAX cinema wherever you are, if you can find an IMAX cinema, something that's coming this week is something I'd not heard of until I was looking around what's being uh, being released. Marvel's Inhumans. Have you heard of this? No. So there's, there's X-Men, there's Avengers, there's Defenders. Now there's Inhumans. And apparently it's some kind of IMAX rendition of a couple of episodes of a new Marvel TV show about an isolated community of superhumans that fight to protect themselves, which sounds to me a whole lot like X-Men. Yes. But it's called Inhumans. It's a Marvel property and it's at IMAX cinemas this week. There you go. And also in TV this week, uh, look, tune into Compass. Maybe for one of the big reasons to tune in Compass on ABC Saturday, 6 p.m., is just to see how the show is changing. Kumi Taguchi looks at the way migration in Australia has changed attitudes towards our new citizens and how we sort of feel about that. It's a much bigger sort of sense of spirituality now than it is uh, like religious story times. Uh, and so Josipa and Frank are a European couple that met and married thanks to the Snowy Mountains scheme and um, the granddaughter of a Vietnam War refugee. Well, Kumi introduces to all these sorts of people who now call Australia home and through their stories, uh, what contributions they make to a sense of belonging, which enriches our idea of Australian. So that's Encompass. Yep. Well worth having a look at. Also this week on SPS though, something that's actually got me completely um, I wouldn't say foaming at the mouth but just jumping up and down in anticipation. <laughs> I repeat, uh, he's not foaming not at the foaming. mouth. <laughs> this coming Wednesday at 8.30pm there is a new documentary style TV reality show which honestly is new and I underscore new Yeah, I was about here. to yawn. But no, no, no. This is new. Look me in the eye. Here's the premise, right? Okay. Okay, here's the premise. Two estranged people 
sit facing each other in a room and hold eye contact for at least five minutes. Do they speak? Now, no, they don't. Great they, viewing. No, no, honestly. It's <laughs> a staring competition. <laughs> Stare off. Finally. <laughs> hold, hold judgment, gentlemen. Can TV find nothing else now staring? <laughs> hold judgment. I have seen the preview. Okay. I have seen the preview. You will not believe how riveting this is. It's incredible. Do they blink? No, well, it's not that. Are they allowed to blink? People who have, like, uh, maybe um, parents who have not spoken to their child in years. Yeah, okay? yeah. Psychologists So serious levels of estrangement. Serious levels yeah. of estrangement. Um, uh, uh People who were in a marriage that ended and have now come back together, really, um, to, to look at each They're other. They're in this, and yeah. this is this. It's an amazing idea because you see so much go on between these people just by looking in their eyes. It is incredible. But, but well, look. But if you do don't they believe speak? Me, like, no, they don't. But if if you don't believe me, go and check do out. They add thought on bubbles. SBS. <laughs> Are there thought bubbles? Okay, moving on. Moving on. <laughs> True, okay, on. let's get to the true false. Right. Fine. <laughs> well, here we go. It, true or false this week, we've actually got a film coming up with Samuel L. Jackson in it. And that's The Hitman and the Bodyguard. The so Hitman's Bodyguard. The Hitman's Bodyguard. Sorry about that. So um, Ben will be doing that and correcting the title for us a little later in the we'll show. We'll be talking about that a little bit later on. But one of the things we thought we'd talk about, because Samuel L. Jackson is famous slash infamous for that film, Snakes on a Plane, oh, yeah. okay, that came out in 2006. <laughs> How did that film get its name? Well, well, there, well, there was a plane. Okay, no, no, no. There, okay. Here we go. A, the name was changed to Snakes on a Plane by Samuel L. Jackson because he thought it was more appropriate. It was originally called Venom. Okay. <laughs> B, the producers named it after realising that there were, in fact, 450 snakes involved. So they went, well, you know, and they're all on the plane. Or C, it was named at an after-work happy hour among Hollywood colleagues who, could, who were seeing who could come up with the worst pitch for a movie. Okay, so after our next review, come back and see if you know how Snakes on a Plane got its name. Okay, well, uh, do you want to divide an audience in highly opinionated halves? Sure, okay, why not? Okay, well, if that's the case, great. Here's an easy way to do just that. Ask them if they think private or public schooling is the best idea. Bam. Yeah, wow. Well, divide the people. There yep. you go. Or do you want to make an even bigger splash and comment on how someone is raising their child? Oh, yeah. That's the last thing. <laughs> well, starring Captain America himself, Chris Evans, new drama Gifted covers parenting and schooling, and we're going to dare to comment about it. Please don't make me go. You can keep homeschooling me. Tell you everything I know. No more argument, okay? We've discussed this ad nauseum. What's ad nauseum? You don't know? Wow, looks like someone needs school. Good morning, Miss Stevenson. Who can tell me what three plus three is? Everyone knows it's six. Barry, can you stand up, please? Can you tell me what 57 multiplied by 135 is? Okay. Who can? 7,695. The square root is 87.7. And change. Now, what does ad nauseum mean? Chris Evans stars as Frank, who is the guardian of his niece, Mary, played by McKenna Grace. Mary's about seven years old. Um, she's been homeschooled, uh, but at the start of the movie, she goes off to a public school. Basically, she is intensely bored because she is intensely smart and knows way more than everybody, including all the adults around her. And then where Gifted heads towards is um, this collision of uh, schooling and parenting in the same movie. Because uh, Mary is so gifted, so intellectually bright, um, 
um, she, uh, her grandmother her, comes in to try to claim custody of her granddaughter because the grandmother wants the daughter, uh, the granddaughter, to reach her full potential, her full intellectual potential, whereas Frank, her guardian uncle, just wants her to be a normal kid. So there's this tussle going on between where she should be educated, but also the parenting styles of raising a child. And interestingly, this is from director Mark Webb, who a few years ago made this spy, amazing, amazing Spider-Man movies and 500 Days of Summer. But this is a bit of a different kettle of fish mm. for him. Indeed, Captain America, um, and you get Captain America being as being a parent. That's right. Yeah. yeah honestly, I find this a completely um, different storyline to one we would normally have because most films about prodigy kids are about getting out of their way to let them become all they can be. And this one is actually saying, actually, no, we should step in and let them be not prodigies. Yeah, well, it's a, it's really coming down to what you think be all they can be is about. So for Frank, the, the character Chris Evans is playing, he's adamant that his sister, who uh, tragically um, passed away uh, a number of years ago, would, would want her daughter to be raised as a quote-unquote human being, just a normal person, just a nice person, have a normal life, because that's what his sister, the, the young girl's mum, didn't really have. Whereas on the other side, you get uh, the the grandmother uh, character who's played by Lindsay Duncan, a British actress, who is claiming that, yeah, letting a child be all they can be is basically maximising their intellectual potential. So you're right, Mark. Usually in in films, there is much more just a straight-down-the-line message about basically the optimising of a human is letting them be all they can be, whatever that means. This film is kind of daring to question what does that actually mean? Yeah, and it actually goes into the realm of education, doesn't it? Is it yeah, questioning the value of education? Yeah, like really fascinatingly, it, it does question the value of education because, again, this Frank character who I thought Chris Evans did a really good job of, of, of playing Frank up on screen, much different role to Captain America. The film itself gets a bit telemovie, guys. I thought it got a bit dull and a bit weighed down in its own issues and ran around in circles a little bit about the same ideas. But what it does raise is some really powerful ideas to go and talk away about, such as the value of education. What gets raised in Gifted is, um, uh, like, Frank does this amazing thing, I don't think I've ever seen it on screen before, where he turns down a scholarship to, like, a prestigious private school to send his child to a state school because he thinks that will be better for her long term Mm. than sending her to a prestigious education. It's amazing. The commentary about the value of education in that act alone is quite powerful coming out of Gifted, let alone if you then dare to go and talk about it with your friends if you've got kids and you're trying to get them into schools and all that sort of thing. If you want to go and talk about it, it's a bit of a minefield. Do you think a Christian parent would have responded any differently to this kind of tug of war that's in the film? Uh, yeah, look, yes and no, because, you know, Christians are people, right? And Christians Christians are flawed. And uh, they're not immune to the seductive pull of education and also the allure of making your child be all they can be, and I use the word making quite advisedly. I think, look, Gifted gets some points for um, trying to aim at, trying to distill down what's the important thing. What is it that you want a child to be or to do? What is most important? If they were going to know one thing and know, as in learn, yeah, what yeah. Would it be? And so this is where I think a Christian parent would respond differently, particularly to Frank, who I thought on many occasions did a, a fantastic job as a, as a parent. Um, even if you disagree with some of the stuff he does, what he's trying to do, I think, is quite notable. One of the things he does do though is say at a critical point in the film that something is unimportant and don't worry about it and that's god and that's the afterlife and that's how does god and the afterlife go together a christian parent would respond much differently to questions particularly from a child let alone from anyone else about such an important all-important topic so yes sam a christian parent would respond differently but christian or whoever you are watching gifted whether you like the movie or just like me find it a little bit 
uninteresting but still engaging, you will definitely engage with the ideas that are flowing from it about education, about parenting, and about what's most important in life. All right, well, Gifted stars Jenny Slate, Chris Evans, Octavia Spencer, and open last Thursday, August 31. It's rated M for occasional course language. Now we need to get to a uh, true or false answer. Yes, a little earlier I said, I posed the question, Samuel L. Jackson starring in the Snakes on a Plane film. How did Snakes on a Plane actually get its name? Was it because it was changed because the, sorry, yeah, the, uh, because Samuel L. Jackson went, well, that makes no sense, and it was called Venom, so he thought, let's call it Snakes on a Plane. Was it because the producers uh, realised there were 450 snakes on the plane? So they thought, hang on, there's an idea. Uh, or was it because someone had a party and decided that they could come up with the worst pitch ever and that would make a plane full of snakes? Samuel Jackson on worst, the plane. Worst pitch ever. Yeah, it was, in fact, the worst pitch ever. Ha! No kidding. Wow. And it got made into snakes a movie. Snakes on a plane was named after, <laughs> after, at an after-work Hollywood party amongst executives to see who could come up with the most awful pitch for a movie ever and then someone went and made it. Wow. All right, Hollywood. Go. Hollywood. Well, coming up on the big picture, it must be love. Aww. Seriously. It must be. It must Aww. be. And then we'll also set our sights on Assassins on screen, the questionable appeal of horror movies, and the top five fixes. Welcome back. We're up to soundtrack part of the big picture this week, chaps. And to mark the release of a new film called The Lovers that's coming out this Thursday, we figured we had to play this. I never thought I'd miss you half as much as I do. Every night, every day I know that it's you I need To take the blues away It must be love, love, love It must be love, love, love Nothing more, nothing less Love is the best How can it be that we can so much without words Bless you and bless me Bless the bees and the birds Love 
really feel like I don't even need to say this, but that song is It Must Be Love, which I think, they, I think on last count they say 35 times in that song. It Must Be Love by the British lad, British lad, British band Madness. Interesting fact, gentlemen, that that song, which was released by Madness in 1991, was not first recorded by <gasps> Madness. Instead, what? it was written and first recorded in 1971 by, s- by some band called Labi Sifre. Sifra. I, I don't know. No one's ever heard of them because basically Madness came <laughs> along, took that Lobby. song, and made it made it their own. Yeah, but that said, they probably did it so good that people remember them for it, right? There's yeah, some, there's some royalties. Yeah. No one's ever talked about Lobby <laughs> Sifra ever again. Um, this so this is on the soundtrack to a new film called The Lovers. Um, at the moment, there's a few rom com choices around for audiences. I think for more on the younger side of things, you can get the Big Sick, even Baby Driver. Some mm. might go into as a romantic comedy. On the older side of things, there was a film out at cinemas in the last couple of weeks called Hampstead that Brian Gleeson and Diane Keaton are in. I think that's for the more for the mature viewers. And now this film called The Lovers, which stars a married couple played by Deborah Winger and Tracy Letts. Tracy Letts is a bloke. Um, married couple who are separated. They're both having affairs, but then they somehow re-fall re in love with each other, even though they're separately having affairs with other people. That's why it's called The Lovers. It, it, it's presented as sort of a quirky, cool film, but to me it seems like a kind of sad sign of the times, really, that that's the subject matter of that film. Anyway, that's The Lovers. Is that cinemas this week? It's been called The Greatest Game on Earth, as well as One Way to Ruin a Perfectly Good Walk. <laughs> uh, it's not Survivor, uh, just for the record. Whatever your position, your opinion on golf, uh, it is one of the world's most popular pastimes, with... 60 million players and countless spectators. This week sees the release of Tommy's Honour, the true story of old Tom Morris, the father of modern golf and his son Tommy, who became the 19th century's greatest golfers. But what Mark discovered when he sat down for 18 holes of father-son relationship was two very different ideas of what honour meant, and only one that might satisfy God. The game is catching on in England. You will be a wealthy man. Your place is here. I don't want to spend my days teeing up gentlemen who think they're better than me. Can you not see that? What do you think you'll be doing? Making my own way! You prosper thanks to men like me. It's time for a new arrangement, sir. Match is suspended until conditions improve. You're in my way. So Tommy's On is really actually a story about two Toms, okay? The first one is old Tom Morris, who's played by Peter Mullen. He's the pro at St Andrews in Scotland. Now, most people who don't know anything about golf will have heard of St Andrews. It's yeah, it's like the most famous, famous course, in the, course in the world. Yeah, well, who many consider old Tom Morris to be the father of modern golf. And his son, Tommy Morris, who's played by Jack Loudon, also who was in Dunkirk, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, was the first young prodigy in golf history, okay? So Tommy wins four consecutive titles in the Open Championship by the age of 21. Good on you, Tommy. Okay, wow. so like it's pretty impressive no matter what sport you're talking about. And then he's a pioneer of basically professional golf as we understand it today. So how can people go around playing golf and make millions of dollars? Well, basically because of Tommy Morris. Now, and it's, But it's not just for golf fans. I mean, this is the thing. I'm pretty critical. I'm not a big fan of golf. Okay, I am one of those people who own that phrase, what a great way to ruin a walk. Okay, you know, it is... Um, yeah, I'm not much of a golf guy It's not either. a great thought. Now, I know that a lot of people out there are completely different to me and I've got to say I was won over during the film just on the historical grounds it was so interesting did you realise how violent golf used to be <laughs> people would break onto the green and club people you know, or, or smash what? them yeah because they didn't like the state of play or how things were going that's why they invented the rope 
hold to hold spectators <laughs> oh, that, that'll hold back. people back. No, yep. but it used to be a really thick rope, okay, with people tugging on either ends. You know, it, it's incredible. Um, the competition was taken so it had to work so hard to be taken seriously. I mean, it was compared compared. We, we basically had to compete against archery to be for, for relevance, okay? <laughs> um, and blocking your opponent was uh, apparently something you were allowed to do, like hit your ball in front of theirs so they couldn't play. You know, all this sort of stuff is just interesting. The real story, though, is the struggle between father and son to live this life of honour and what honour actually means to each other. Interesting that you point out this is about father and son relationship because I was reading during the week that this is directed by the son of Sean Connery. I did not Talk know that. Talk about famous father and son links, but getting back to the film... Directed by the son of Sean Connery. Is this a film that's about father and sons kind of against the world, or is it father and son against each other? Yeah, well, it's a bit of everything because, like, um, Tommy lives in his father's shadow, so he's struggling to get out of that. Uh, Tommy is the younger guy, if you like. We'll refer to them as old Tom and Tommy. Anyway, Tommy learns from his father to play, though, okay? And he and his father play together and become a great golfing duo. So it's kind of like father and son against the world. But then Tommy pursues a path which his father finds completely distasteful, this whole professionalism. Now it's like father resenting son. It's just pretty much got every father-son you know, degree of relationship you could consider. Okay, so there's the big word honour in the title of Tommy's honour. What sort of honour is it actually hinting at? Yeah, look, again, it seems to cover a great spectrum because you know, honour can mean a lot of things. Like, honour can mean your reputation, your honour, uh, and that's what old Tom Morris you know, sees as honour in the film. You know, my reputation, how I am loved by others. I'm the great craftsman, I'm the loyal servant, I'm the humble caddy. But then honour can also mean glory. And this is what honour means to Tommy, young Tommy, as he sets out to win every scrap of cash he can and become well-known and loved by the ladies and praised by other people. Uh, and then honour can also mean privilege, like it's my honour to do something. And Tommy learns, as the film goes on, that it is actually his privilege in, pa- in one particular point to actually fall in love and marry a woman called Meg, who no one else seems to like, but whom he values. So, you know, these definitions compete all through the film, and it kind of makes you think as you go along and enjoy the violence of golf. Right. So who is the most honourable character in this film? (laughs) You know, it's hard to say, but I would say that the most honourable character probably has to be young Tommy, because in the end, he's actually able to separate himself from golf. Okay, so like he actually says to his father, who's who's very, very much built his life around golf, he says, uh, golf might be your God, but it's not mine. Now, that's at a point where Tommy has won multiple championships, is making more money than his father, is doing incredibly well, and you would think... Golf would be everything to him, but it's not. Um, what's everything to him is the relationship that he's in with Meg, his wife. Um, and to, to me, I sort of feel like, you know, this is a person who's actually got a sense of perspective that honour is not about rising above everybody else. Honour is about the day-to-day things we do in our homes. It's how we treat those closest to us who who often we'd expect to forgive us for being cranky in the morning or those sorts of things or, you know, you know bad company. Um, and yet at the same time, honour is working out how you relate in the unseen moments. And I feel like that's what God is talking about. When a person is worthy of honour, they're worthy of honour because of what they're doing when they're not seen, not when they're on show to the world. All right, Tommy's Honour stars Peter Mullen, Jack Loden, Ophelia Loverbond and Sam Neill. Sam right. Neill! Sam, Sam Neill is an cool. Australian... It's rated M for Mature Themes and opens nationally this coming Thursday, September 7. 
And actually, I'll be talking a bit about that on our Eternity uh, news videos. If you don't know, Eternity is a great supporter of the big picture. And eternitynews.com.au, you'll see all sorts of things from the big picture over there. Uh, we actually have a Christian movie for Christians, which is my take on why most Christian films fail and why you should all go see All Saints, uh, which is something we talked about in the last show. And taking love advice from killers. Ben is going to examine the new release, The Hitman and The Bodyguard, and he discovers the sort of love advice you can actually get from The Hitman's killers. Bodyguard. The Hitman's Hitman. Bodyguard. I'm going to keep directing you all the way through the show. Well, We're going to talk about that very soon, and there is a video up at eternitynews.com.au discussing it as well. And if you if you like the sound of Ben's voice, um, go ahead and you can find lots more uh, with him doing reviews on all sorts of things like Gifted and other things on eternitynews.com.au. Coming up on The Big Picture, we ask an expert what is the appeal of horror movies before we take aim at Ryan Reynolds and Samuel L. Jackson's action comedy, The Hitman's Bodyguard. Hey, welcome back to The Big Picture. And what you should do about The Big Picture is you should podcast us or go to thebigpicturewebsite.com for all kinds of back editions of The Big Picture. The Big Picture website. We're out there. Indeed. Now, I'm a bit scared because this week sees the release of the remake of Stephen King's chilling clown horror, It. Yes, that disturbing title got us thinking about what it was about horror films that attracted the human mind, particularly the young mind. Why do we willingly pay money to be terrified? And why do so many of us share that common experience as young men and women of sitting down with a group of friends to be terrified together? Well, for this week's press record segment, we thought it was best to get some professional advice on both counts. And uh, we have a man on the line who not only used to write horror scripts, but he's also now a youth minister. Welcome to the show, Joe. Joe Smith. Exactly. I appreciate it, Ben. Thank you. Hey, no worries. Mate, uh, let's start by giving our audience a sense of your thoughtfulness in this area. You'd say you've been interested in horror, the horror genre for a fair time now, even writing and producing your own short films? So I was probably interested in it far too early, getting into it as a kid who was eight or nine years old through seeing some horror films. Mm. But, uh, back in my uni days, I really got into uh, making horror films, so I've uh, directed and written films which are like a vampire love story. Honestly, it was before Twilight came out. Oh, wow. You, <laughs> you were before Twilight. Well oh, done. dang. Just peaked early. What, what, what is it, Joe, that you think that attracts not just you but plenty of other people to, to horror films? Like It's kind of a strange idea, right, to pay money to sit in a dark room and have the daylights terrified out of you? Look, some people like roller coasters. You know, that's true of the physical terror. I really hate that. But since primary school, as I said, I've just had a fascination with the psychological terror that comes from a horror film. Just, you know, like the scares can't hurt me, but I love the thrill of just being shocked by a really well-made horror film. Oh, more of a psychological chill. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So your ministry, so you've got, you're a church worker, you're a youth minister, you work in schools too. Um, do they bring you into contact a lot with the sort of target audience? And, and do you have anything to say to them about horror films? Oh, yeah. Oh, without a doubt, you know, young kids these days, as they did back in my day, they really enjoy scary films. I mean, you know, there are two kinds of horror. There's kind of the slash or gore horror, your Texas Chainsaw, your zombie movie, and there's kind of the, yeah, the spiritual realm horror, like your Exorcist, Insidious Conjuring. And I think the kids these days really actually get more scared and more excited by the second category. You know, the films the spiritual the ones. Birth, the spiritual ones. Demon projections. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And obviously, you know, Every year I'm teaching a lesson about Jesus casting out demons. It's always the case that at least half the students in the class have seen these kinds of films and are fascinated by them. And I have to say to these kids, you know, this isn't just the stuff of Hollywood fantasy. You know, it was, you know, demon possession, the spiritual realm was real and threatening in Jesus' time. And 
I said, tell them that I know Christian missionaries today in other parts of the world who have encountered people suffering from the evil spirits and demon possession, but also that God has real power over this realm. Now, now, Joe, as we've mentioned, uh, you you have dabbled in writing horror scripts and making short horror movies yourself. As you said, that since you're a kid, you've been watching horror films. But it sounds like to us that you've been going a bit of a journey with this genre. Like, has has your attitude towards horror changed over time? Sure. I mean, as I said, like when I was a kid, I actually saw the original It miniseries back on TV in '99. I was a you know a, just a very fresh faced nine year old. But uh, you know, since then. You know, in my 20s, I really enjoyed sort of more and more gory films like Saw and that kind of stuff, as well as being pretty excited by the paranormal activity films and the thrills that they gave me. But then after becoming a father um, and, you know, thinking about the, you know, the reality of what this spiritual realm is um, and think about you know, what my kids could, you know, what I could be opening myself up to by watching these sorts of films and getting excited by, I thought, actually, this is real stuff. This is bad stuff. It's dangerous stuff. And, yeah, I don't want to do anything that could bring that kind of horrible spiritual realm into my life, my mm. life. Is, is that what you'd say to a parent you know, to so maybe someone who actually had a, a younger person in their life who might be taking an interest in films sure mark look i don't want to say that it's a a sin as such was totally wrong to watch these films because i guess all modern entertainment has some sort of objectionable aspect to it generally speaking but I guess I want to say, if, if people are excited by sort of, you know, gory, violent acts against people in slasher horror, or excited by, you know, people being, you know, possessed by a demon, I've got to say, you know, why are you choosing to pursue that entertainment? I mean, Philippians 4 verse 8 says, we should pursue whatever is true, noble, right, pure, whatever is lovely, what is admirable, you know, these are the things to think about. And so as Christians, I think it's better if we can seek entertainment as we mature, you know, entertainment that kind of gets us beyond those things that really are just horrible, nasty and only turning us away from God's goodness. Mate, that's brilliant. Well, listen, Joe, thank you very much for being part of the show. Thank you, Mark and Ben. I appreciate it. The Hitman's Bodyguard. No, the new action comedy starring Samuel L. Jackson and Ryan Reynolds is not subtle about what it's about. The Hitman's Bodyguard. The Hitman's a bodyguard, bodyguard and mm. a Hitman. That's right. Ryan Reynolds is the bodyguard, Jackson is the hitman, and this bickering odd couple are sprinting across Europe to try and bring down a European tyrant. Ben discovered that this sweary, violet romp is, at its heart, all about love and actually seeking justice. 27 times. That's so many times it tried to kill me. 27... 28! <laughs> I'll be safe, Romo! You will last one hour without me. Where your husband is. You lost my husband? Do you have any idea how stupid you sound? The only way Bryce and Kincaid don't make it to so they kill each other first. So, Ryan Reynolds is a bodyguard, Michael, and he gets roped in to uh, escort this hitman, Darius, played by Samuel L. Jackson. Across uh, from England into Europe, into the Hague, actually, because there's a European um, war 
criminal case going on against the former uh, leader of Budapest, played by Gary Oldman, if you can believe this. And uh, Darius is like the starring witness in in this. Uh, This film is directed by an Australian guy, Patrick Hughes, who a number of years ago made a pretty cool, like a neo-Western, like outback movie called Red Hill that was quite good. Then he went on to make The Expendables 3, which is, you know, these um, Sylvester Stallone massive action Mm. romps in the last couple of years. And now he's here with uh, with The Hitman's Bodyguard. Look, it's, it's one of those kind of movies that, for me, reminded me of loads of other movies I'd seen in the 80s and 90s. They're kind of the bickering odd couple sorts of movies. Everything from, you know, Lethal Weapon to Tango and Cash. And there wasn't too much in it that was terribly notable or new for my money. I got to say, it sounds so much like an American view of the world. You know, like it's a, the, the Hague, that's a place, isn't it? And um, and where are we going to get a tyrant from? Look, uh, and it di- even seems faintly racist to have an, <laughs> an actual. They didn't, even, they didn't invent a European country. They say Budapest, and this guy is a, this guy is a lethal genocidal dictator. Like, wow! Really? I, I I'm not from Budapest, but I felt actually creeped out by Gary Oldman. What are you doing? I love the fact that they even think of Budapest as a country. Like, it's a city for pizza. Okay, look, Reynolds and Jackson. They sound like a good pairing, though, were they? Uh, they're, they're okay. A little bit like this, the whole movie overall. A little bit Luke. The whole thing is a little bit lukewarm and, and mediocre. And I thought this that was the same with Reynolds and Jackson. And they're, they're basically playing kind of cartoon character versions of themselves, which Samuel L. Jackson usually plays anyway, I think. But he does that amped up version of Samuel L. Jackson where he shouts everything. Yeah. Also, I, I should uh, point out that he swears loads in this as well. So if you get turned off by Samuel L. Jackson swearing, yeah. really? If My you get, goodness, that man is usually pure as the driven snow. If you get turned off by the potty mouth, uh, t- turn off from this. And then Reynolds is playing more of, of the straight man. Uh, and then, strangely, as they're going across the country, you know, being shot at by henchmen that cannot shoot straight ever, <laughs> as they're trying to get away from all, you know, all kinds of different situations, you get these professional killers, but they're also, because that's what the background well, Reynolds is. professional killers. That's, that's the background you get Reynolds is from as well. You get the, the hired guns, but you also get these strange subplots about love. And relationship yeah, counselling. That's what you said in the beginning, that there was actually some sort of love mix in here. Yeah. It's like, if you can believe it, the Hitman's Bodyguard combines assassins and love advice. And, and bizarrely, that doesn't even fire things up that well. <laughs> so it's Because I think on paper, it sort of sounds, well, that's like an interesting idea. Uh, maybe we get Darius, this lethal uh, hired gun, to spout all this wisdom off to Ryan Reynolds, who's um, basically, uh, his life has fallen apart because the woman that he loves, who works for Interpol, who's got him on this case, uh, broke his heart years ago. He can't forgive it, can't let it go. And Darius keeps, through through all these potty mouth words of wisdom, keeps trying to instill in him that basically it's all about love. But this is a guy who kills for money and he's then constantly telling this character that Ryan Reynolds plays, as well as us, the audience, that actually at the end of the day, everybody, it's all about love. And he's in love with his wife, who's played by Selma Hayek, who also is, is, she's pretty funny, but also swears a blue streak all the way through this movie. But Darius keeps reminding us, yeah, it's all about love, everybody. Love, 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 love. I love my wife. My, my, it's, she's fantastic. Um, she's the most important thing in my life. But go back to the bit where <laughs> it's a hitman giving, he's offering a, love advice. He's a sociopath. He's killing people and he's going to tell you about loving people. About the heart. Oh, well, that's good. About the heart of matters. Is there something to sink your teeth into here, Ben? Uh, uh, look, if you're... Going a, deep into the hitman's bodyguard, perhaps? Uh, I, I was More just, than the popcorn. I was just going to say, look, if you're a fan of, of action comedies, this one's fine and will, you know, probably... You'll, it'll, see, it'll see you through. <laughs> Sorry, uh, you'll you'll I get your fix. The, I just saw the Ben McKeckin poster. 
Fine. Fine. Yeah. There's, there's, got one action, there's one action sequence towards the end that you might say is a little bit inventive. Everything else is kind of formulaic. But, Sam, there's something deeper to sink your teeth into. Apart from whether you're questioning where you get your love advice from and would you get it from a hired gun, something else that I found really notable about The Hitman's Bodyguard is I think it's the most biblically accurate movie of the year. Let what? me repeat myself. The most biblically accurate movie of the year because Darius quotes accurately from not just Deuteronomy 32, but Romans 12, which cites the same statement about God, which is, Vengeance belongs to me, God, I will repay. Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. Darius sets that up and and says, look, that's what God says. But then Darius says, and I quote, I wasn't prepared to wait that long. I'm not prepared to wait for God to hand out justice. I'm going to get some. And a lot of the jobs that he's on, either he's driven by revenge or the people that are employing him are driven by revenge and they're seeking their own justice. So you can walk out of the hitman's bodyguard asking yourself that same question, if you like, because you probably won't be asking too much else about the movie. <laughs> you could be asking yourself, do are you prepared to wait for God's vengeance to be done, him to bring his justice, or will you seek to repay? Okay, well, The Hitman's Bodyguard stars Ryan Reynolds, Samuel L. Jackson, Salma Hayek, and Elodie Young. It opened nationally at cinemas last Thursday, August 31st, and is rated MA15 plus for what is that? Strong themes of violence? Oh, in coarse language. Mm, so, surprise! Surprise, be careful. Coming up on The Big Picture, we set our sights on the most notable assassins in cinema history before Ben saves us a whole lot of trouble by announcing the top five fixes. Got a problem with that? You're back, and so are we. Before the break, we were talking about a new action comedy that Ben wasn't a huge fan of, The Hitman's Bodyguard. Oh, but I should point out, uh, Mark did uh, accurately say that um, Bucharest is a city, not a country. I've just remembered that Gary Oldman's character was the former president of Belarus. Belarus. Which is an actual real country, not Budapest. Yes, so I'm, yes. I'm in error there, but I will go back to what I maintain. The Hitman's Bodyguard, meh, not yeah. so great. They right. did sort of grab just bits of Europe. Yeah. Well, that Samuel L. Jackson slash Ryald Reynolds uh, effort is the latest in a long, long line of hide guns up on screen. So for the Vault segment this week, we asked Insights reviewer and big picture regular Russ Matthews to, to track down some of the most notable assassins at the movies. And Ben began by asking Russ whether we should even be talking about professional killers. You know what? I really thought that was, was an interesting challenge to even look at that and considering my justification for my own cinematic viewing taste, because there's some great films out there about assassins kind of at the core of it. But also even going back, I guess one of the things we can look at is look at the biblical example that there's even stories of assassins and assassinations that have occurred within the narrative of the Bible. Whereabouts? Oh, you probably see that with Ehud and also Jael back in Judges and also looking even at Joab and 2 Samuel. Right, back in the Old Testament history books. Yeah, so in the Old Testament. So we'll be able to go through and again, not to justify it, but just showing that it's a part of the kind of the human story. And so, but what we need to do is not necessarily focus on the assassinations or the assassins themselves, but kind of pull back and maybe look at the bigger picture of what is it that they're really trying to do. Okay, I see where you're going with this. So we're not condoning the actions of these people up on screen, but we cannot deny there have been a lot of notable assassin hit person movies across the past. Okay, whiz us through some of the most notable examples. Let's go with Leon the Professional, which is actually about an assassin who really has kind of maybe a father's heart in trying to train up a young girl, actually, to be an assassin, which I know sounds really kind of strange, but 
it's an interesting thing. Can an assassin actually have a heart? Are there other assassin movies that demonstrate that a person who kills professionally could possibly have a heart? Oh, I think The Road to Perdition is actually a great one. Also, Mr. and Mrs. Smith is actually a great one. Interesting one. Is Mr. and Mrs. Smith the one where Brad Pitt and Angelina, Angelina Jolie were married and they're assassins? Yeah, surprise, surprise. Here they're in this secret world, but they don't even realize that actually they're both assassins. And Road to Perdition was that movie that Tom Hanks uh, played, a hit person. And also, he, his son was getting in on this family business? Well, actually, his son actually just witnessed him killing somebody. And then it's him really trying to find redemption for his family and really save his family in the end. I mean, also, there's even no, recently two John Wick films really looking at the emotional side of what it is that really drives an assassin. Oh, that's right. Keanu Reeves was playing John Wick and his wife was taken out in the first couple of minutes of the film and that drove all the action thereafter. All right. So we're moving on from the heart of things, the relational. What other examples have you got for us, notably from assassin history and cinema? Go back to Apocalypse Now, kind of looking at Vietnam through the eyes of an assassin. So looking at the Vietnam War. Gross Point Blank, which interestingly enough was a comedy. But the whole idea of thinking, if you showed up at your uh, your class reunion and you found out that one of the guys or, or women that you actually went to school with is a hitman. Which is basically the storyline of that John Cusack film, Gross Point Blank. You are right. I haven't thought about that film for ages. It was very funny, but very dark. Other examples? Okay, well, we could probably go through and look at the Bourne series. So kind of looking at the whole idea of trying to find his identity, finding out who he is and why he does what he's done in the past. But then probably the one that we would maybe make note of would be James Bond. James, are you, are you saying James Bond's a hard killer? I am, actually. You know, we can say we can try and push it off as him being an agent of the state or the MI6, but really he's a hired gun. He's supposed to go out and assassinate um, different people who are harming the world. How do you think we should feel about that as viewers? It's an interesting one to kind of look at and kind of consider is that, that really if you pull back and look at most assassins films you find that many of them are kind of serving a greater purpose. You mean the assassins are serving a greater purpose? Right. Most of them really see themselves as serving either humanity or maybe serving a country and maybe even to a certain degree maybe even God. You mentioned right back at the start that the Bible itself contains stories of assassins that are not necessarily being condoned in there but what, how do we wrap all this together and, and think what are these assassin stories and movies revealing about us? I think it really comes back to some basic ideas and, and consider Considerations. And we're looking at we need redemption, we want justice, but also looking at the fact that we want salvation from something and that we really want and desire someone out there to be saving us. And, you know, you have to look at the idea that we all need a savior. Thank you very much, Russ Matthews. And for more of Russ Matthews' insights into movies, uh, he's filing reviews every week over at Insights website. So go to insights.uca.org.au. Top five time. <laughs> I've been waiting nearly an hour for this, guys. The rest of the show sounds like a burden. I now. know. I, I love how you push through, Sam, just to get to this point. <laughs> okay. Well, if you've been suffering along with Sam right now, we're at the top <laughs> no, five. Yes. Uh, and, and we've been uh, spending a bit of time thinking about how to speak carefully and well about one of cinema's most confronting professions, being a gun for hire. Mm. So for the top five this week, Ben, you're going to talk about a, a non-lethal way of taking care of business. Right. Yeah. So as we're thinking this week about assassins and what are they? They're hired guns. And what's that? Well, that's basically like a troubleshooter. Right, see what I'm doing here? Nice. They're shooting trouble. Working through. Yeah, and then working through. So what's that? What's a troubleshooter? Well, they're basically a fixer. Ah, people who dispose of bodies. So, no, I'm attempting now to do a list of top (laughs) five fixers that is non-lethal. All right. Shall we get into it? Five. From 2012's Wreck-It Ralph, Fix-It Felix. Hey! How could a top five fixer list not include Fix-It Felix? Such a lovable I'm going to fix it. 
That, yeah. that's him, right? That's him. Yeah, like, that's, you, uh, wow, that's that was spooky. That was uh, are you are you fix it, Felix? I I went for the audition. <laughs> yeah, didn't get cast. Oh. Yeah, look for anyone who doesn't remember fix it, Felix as memorably as as vividly as Sam does. Um, he's a character in the game um, that Wreck It Ralph is the the villain of. So as Ra- as Ralph goes around and smashes stuff, <laughs> fix it does what he does and what it says in his name. He just fix goes it, around and. Felix? Fixes things, and he lives in a place called Nice Land, and everyone thinks he's the hero and all that kind of stuff, which you know really annoys Ralph quite quite a bit. But I've got no other reason to put him on this list <laughs> apart from the fact that he's got fix it in his name. Well so done. Let's, so let's move on. Four. But I've got I've, it gets better from here, chaps. In terms of at least more inventive on this idea of what's a fixer and troubleshooter and that kind of thing. Special mention at this point goes to the A team. I would love to have put the A team on this list, but. Um, I'm one of the only people in the world who liked the A-Team movie. Uh, most people didn't. As a result of that, I've, I've left it off this. But they're great troubleshooters, the A-Team, but not as good as Ghostbusters from 1984. Yeah, they are great pictures. Who had a bigger impact on cinema as troubleshooters and these? who you're going to call blokes from the early 80s? I'm not talking about the remake from last year. I'm talking about the early 80s original. And can you possibly conjure up more trouble than if you're being spooked by things from the supernatural realm? I don't really think so. And then how do you then go about battling that where you just get a bunch of four fixers in who've got these kind of electricity guns and fancy traps and cool suits and, and guys that fight marshmallow men? And, and they're in an, an ex-firehouse. So they've and got a they, pole they can slide up and down. And That's... they come out of X5. That, that pretty much guarantees you <laughs> you should get on the list of fixers. So Ghostbusters from 1984 is at number four. Up in the Air, guys, from 2009, a great film that George Clooney starred in. And he was basically starring as, I thought, some kind of epitome of the GFC, the global financial crisis. He was the guy hired by companies, big companies, to come in and fire people. He was the guy who had the job of downsizing. That's like that's all he was. He was a downsizer. If your profits were being lost and you needed to trim the fat, what are you going to do? You call George Clooney to come in and bring the bad news to people. But he Talk wasn't of- brutal about it, too. That's the weird thing. Is like he actually had done it so often. He was like a surgeon, and he knew how to almost counsel the people he was doing it to. Yeah, one of the big parts of the film, you're right, is uh, the fact that he's a company fixer, but he does it in such a way that it is almost a, an, a, a science, like a, a somewhat compassionate science, but he does... Come across uh, this character, Ryan Bingham, does come to realize across the film that he's possibly being a bit too surgical in his fixing ability, a bit too clinical, a bit too detached, and that as he cut, as you downsize, uh, you, what you're actually doing is cutting down on relationships. And is that really the way to fix up mm. your life? Maybe on a corporate sense, possibly. Uh, but uh, Ryan Bingham, this George Clooney character, really comes to like confront that and be challenged by that. Is he actually fixing his own life by cutting down on relationships? Can I also give a special mention? Though, to a character that Alec Baldwin plays in a film called Glen Gary Glen Ross, who is a, a really potty mouth axe swinger who comes in one night to a real estate firm and basically in 10 minutes of this film is like one of the most memorable cameos ever, just cleans house and fixes stuff. Glen Gary Glen Ross. Wow. Two. I don't think any list of fixers, troubleshooters could get away with not including the character of Q from the James Bond films. Oh. So the man behind the man. Because I thought you meant Q as in the recurring character in Star Trek Next Generation. No, I, I would never mean that. Oh, Instead, okay, what I mean is Q from... Because he, he didn't fix problems so much as make them all the time, and that was what got Captain Picard hot under the collar. 
Yeah, no, not to be confused with that cue. <laughs> this cue has been played by a total of six actors on, on screen, most famously, I think, by Desmond Llewellyn, who was in 17 Bond movies from 963 to 999. Also, John Cleese has played Q, and most recently, Ben Wishaw has been this guy. So before Trouble even shows up and tries to shoot down James Bond, Q is that guy trying to shoot down Trouble ahead of ahead of time with all kinds of whiz-bang gadgets that go on in the James Bond film, uh, in the James Bond universe. So for my money, Q has to be filed under on a top five fixes list, but one. at number one, a film called Sunshine from 2007. Have you guys seen this? Uh, this is the space horror. It's a little bit, a little bit space horror. But why I picked this is because the team on this spaceship is like one of the most ultimate fixing teams in history. So this team is. This is set in 2057. The sun is dying. It's basically fading out. This team on this spaceship has a nuclear weapon, and they are heading towards the sun to reignite the sun. But as what I just described might suggest to you, it's a sacrificial mission. Ah. Like they're never coming back. They're mm. not going to do this. So the ultimate fixer team that I could think of in cinema history, and there's been plenty of like end of the world movies and people will have to go like Armageddon and the core and all sort of mm. thing. They have to go and do stuff. But for a team that heads towards a self-sacrificial noble cause. With no plan of return. With no plan of return. I picked at number one for top five fixes, Sunshine from 2007. That star is dying. And if it dies, everything dies. There is nothing, literally nothing more important than completing our mission. Are you scared? No. I am. Fixed. Fixed. We've been fixed. We've fixed the sun. But you know what? It's just about time for us to uh, get out of the studio. But we're back next week and coming up on the show next week, lessons from SBS staring competition, Look Me in the Eye. Also, chills from Stephen King's It. And unmentionables from Captain Underpants. Captain Underpants. Captain Underpants. I've never been called Captain Underpants. I'm just Ben (laughs) McKechn. And I'll still be Mark Hadley. See you next week. The Big Picture is a Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. 